Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv and Tokyo. I'm your host, Mia Kosiavelu, and today I'll be interviewing a very special guest, Ewan Oglethorpe from Data Friendly Space. Welcome, Ewan. How are you? I'm doing well, Mia. Thanks so much for having me. It's fantastic to have you on our um, end of year, really, edition, isn't it? End of 2021, and what a year it's been. But before we dive into specific questions, would you do us the honor of introducing yourself? My name is Ewan Oglethorpe, and I'm the founder of Data Friendly Space. We're a nonprofit organization based in the U.S. that, in a broad stroke, helps the international humanitarian community more efficiently use data and information when providing humanitarian response. I come from a private sector data science background and transitioned into doing humanitarian work about five or six years ago. And uh, saying that really makes me cathartic about how time does indeed fly quite a bit. Yeah, that time where you went to Nepal, right? And um found that the laptop was the tool that you didn't expect you'd be using there. Is that right? It's been like five years, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So in 2015, I was working for private sector tech companies out in San Francisco. And before that, I was always a big kind of data geek, studied computer science in in high school and uh, data science in college. And throughout my time, working for private sector companies, I, I certainly enjoyed the work that I was doing, but often I felt like it kind of, it lacked a little substance in terms of the actual application. And in 2015, there was a really bad series of earthquakes in Nepal. And at that time, my parents were living out there. My mom was working for the World Wildlife Fund. And I left sort of on a whim and ended up really getting engrossed in the world of humanitarian information management. And as you mentioned, I showed up to Nepal really not knowing what to expect and was expecting to do some kind of physical or manual labor and ended up just uh, hacking away on my laptop as I've kind of always done since I was a little kid. Yeah, and that's all on your TEDx talk, which I'm sure lots of people are going to want to find out more about. It's super interesting. And thanks for um, taking that turn in your direction. You know, we're all very grateful. Do you want to dive deeper into talking about data-friendly space and DEEP, the, the data entry and exploration platform that you've developed? Yep, certainly. I think one thing I'd like to say before going into that is that, you know, I realize I've certainly made this shift, but for people that are listening who are thinking about potentially doing something similar to their lives, I would certainly encourage it. I've found that it's been a super rewarding experience. And, you know, if you feel like taking a dive like this and you don't like it, there's something saying that you can't go back to what you're doing before. But in terms of Deep, Deep is a software that we've been working on essentially since the Nepal earthquake. And it's a web application that allows humanitarian organizations to more efficiently sort of harness large amounts of qualitative or secondary data. So in a practical example, humanitarian organizations that are responding to a crisis are essentially inundated with information in the form of social media, news reports, reports from other humanitarian organizations. And they really, before Deep, there really was a lack of a central cohesive place where they could take all this information, annotate it into common frameworks or taxonomies 
that really allows essentially the quantification of qualitative data. And by having this information more organized and readily available, can be used to more efficiently inform humanitarian responses. Great. So thanks for that lovely call to action. You, I'm sure you're going to inspire a lot of our listeners and um, I'm sure they're already doing lots as well listening to this podcast. Humanitarian AI Today is all about people like you. So project-wise, UN, what's the first thing your team got started working on and what are you doing now? And if we can go further, where do you see data-friendly space and deep going in the future? So, yeah, as I mentioned, Deep was one of our first projects, but right around the same time, we were working on an interesting project called FieldSight, which was funded by UN Ops, which is essentially the operations agency within the United Nations. And what FieldSight does is it's a mobile application, a web application that allows for more kind of rigorous and logical steps to be followed when constructing buildings. So what you can imagine is that If you're funding, let's say 500 schools to be constructed in a certain district, it helps you to ensure standardization in terms of best practices for how that construction is taking place by things like checklists and having people taking pictures they're going through step-by-step in the construction process. So since Deep and FieldSight, we kind of grown quite organically as an organization most of the time that I've been with Data Friendly Space and doing this work, I've been based in Nepal. And while I was out there, um, I started networking with friends and people that I met that were in the IT and humanitarian sectors. And from there, we, we started to develop an organization out there that was really focused largely on doing this sort of um, IT development and analysis. And as time has gone on, uh, really through organic growth, we've, we've grown into developing sort of suite of different applications for the humanitarian community. And we also have a workforce that does secondary data review and analysis, which is basically using Deep to take those humanitarian documents and annotate them into sensical manners. It'd be great for some examples of actual projects you're working on and and some of the initiatives. What organizations are, are you currently collaborating with? We certainly like to keep our scope quite broad in terms of the organizations that we work with, be it from smaller NGOs to larger UN agencies. We just wrapped up a 15-month project with IMAP, which is another US-based NGO that focuses on information management in the humanitarian community. And what we did with IMAP was monitoring the impacts of COVID on humanitarian responses in six countries around the world. So that project was using Deep and working alongside them, we had a team of analysts and document reviewers that were following updates and news from these six countries. And that was a super interesting project. And I think the largest application of Deep and definitely one of the longer term ones. And it was really, um, I think it was a really interesting stress test of Deep as a software and also the ability for us to be able to scale up a a large analysis team like that, working alongside IMAP. And on the flip side, with some of the large organizations we work with, we've been working with the United Nations Environmental Program for the past two or three years. And they have a tool called NEAT, N-E-A-T, which is the, the Nexus Environmental Assessment Tool. 
And essentially it's a tool that allows for humanitarian organizations to better understand the environmental impacts of a humanitarian situation, both in an urban and rural context. When we started working with UNEP, the tool was a really heavy Excel sheet that they would send out. And working with them, we sort of transitioned that into a web application that is much more sustainable and, and much more flexible and easy to use. And we've really uh, enjoyed this project. And I think it underscores quite a bit what we do as an organization, which is taking projects um, and initiatives that are very useful and um, have a lot of value, but just from the actual nuts and bolts of how the technology behind them works isn't necessarily the most modern. And so yeah, where we come in is modernizing the way those applications are implemented. What are you finding? Can you help predict things? Like what kind of models are coming out of this? I think there's a number of ways that you can use it. Obviously, by following a more standardized method for assessing environmental impact, um, you can start to come away with more quantifiable information that can be used for things such as predictive modeling. And of course, it can be used to inform humanitarian operations in terms of what other types of assistance may be needed to counteract damages that could be seen on the environment. So if you take an example of, let's say, a refugee camp has been developed near a source of water, a river, or a lake, you know, then if there's issues with sanitation, then you could see issues with water contamination, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, those are going to have real impacts both on people in that area and the people that could be downstream from that water source and also environment and uh, wildlife that could be in that region. So I think it's really, you know, I think environment is obviously a very essential part of humanitarian operations. And I think, you know, looking into the future, uh, things like climate change, it's only going to become more and more important. Indeed. And um, maybe to recap what you've said, could you maybe say something about how data-friendly space fits into the humanitarian community at large? Absolutely. So we definitely see ourselves as a supporting organization for humanitarian groups that are out there actually doing the, you know, more tangential work in the field. And there's three main ways that we do this. The first is uh, we develop custom IT products, which we've been talking about, like with UNEP. And the second one is the development of the D platform, which we discussed a little bit earlier. Both the, the actual IT development, but also we're very interested in the direction of the platform itself and helping to make sure that it aligns with other applications that are in the humanitarian sphere. And the third way we fit in is the analysis and secondary data review teams that we mentioned in the in the context of the IMAP project. And I think, you know, beyond that, looking at our mission, it, it certainly is to modernize and bring forward the way that IT and data is used in the humanitarian community. Great. Jumping ahead a bit from your time in Nepal and um, everything you've described, where do you see things moving towards the metaverse and what you're doing? Where are you taking things at data-friendly space? I think one thing I really want to emphasize is that while, of course, we're seeing a lot of really impressive advancements in technology in developed countries, and indeed, there are lots of impressive advancements of technology in developing world countries. 
I think looking at things like the metaverse, it really sort of widens the gap from the world's poorest to the world's richest. And I think, you know, this definitely isn't a new trend and it's something that has been there ever since civilizations have existed. Uh, so I think it could be some time really until technologies like the metaverse could be fruitful or useful for the humanitarian community. I think though, looking at artificial intelligence and machine learning, I think those types of processes do have real potential and do currently have real value in the humanitarian community. But one thing that I've noticed in my time and one thing that I, I think is certainly relevant going forward is that in order to use these more advanced predictive analytics and things like that, is that you need the information before you can start to develop models. And what I see a lot of in the humanitarian community is that information can be really hard to get sometimes. We've done some quite extensive projects with large aid organizations where their information is just stored in libraries of PDF documents. And how are you ever going to build you know, a viable machine learning solution when information, you just don't have the information, right? So I think there's a lot of building blocks that need to happen before the humanitarian community can really take advantage of all the modern AI and machine learning has to offer. I'm trying to wrap my head around the metaverse here. What is your understanding and definition of it from a humanitarian AI point of view? I was doing a little brainstorming before this about ways that something like the metaverse could be used in the humanitarian community. I think one way could potentially be awareness. I was actually at a, um, a music festival a couple months ago that, you know, it was a camping festival. And, um, and there's one point where I was looking around and I was essentially thinking, this is basically like a IDP or refugee camp that we have willingly paid hundreds of dollars to go and stay in. And, you know, you sort of had in this moment of like reflection, I kind of realized this environment that I was and realizing that, you know, of course, there's millions of people around the world that are in that sort of scenario without like, against their will, of course. So something like the metaverse that can really allow people to sort of be immersed in another environment could really help people to become more sort of aware about the realities of what it would be like to live in a refugee camp or what it would be like to be in the middle of a humanitarian crisis. Because I think for most of us, that's just something that is completely unfathomable given our day-to-day -day lives. Right. So a totally immersive kind of experience of, of what you're describing. It's funny, the analogy you made, you know, volunteering to go somewhere and paying for it. And it's quite humbling seeing the real thing and, um, You've seen both. So what's your experience of the field versus the um, metaverse? Do you want to jump into a question about what you would do with technology and what you would prioritize you in given your experience in the field and technology? Yeah, certainly. For me, I, I think the main prioritization for humanitarian organizations is really funding and sort of centralization or prioritization within organizations themselves. I think a lot of times data and information can be an afterthought. And I think it's really challenging to advance or modernize the way information is used 
use this without the funding and without the prioritization from people both that are very senior in organizations and ones that are more directly managing these projects. Another interesting thing to note is that oftentimes for humanitarian organizations, the funding to develop any sort of technology solution is tied to a response. So if there's, if you're responding to a crisis, let's say it's a year long crisis and there's money put towards a data solution and that's developed for that time period and it's quite useful, well then the crisis ends and then what happens to that solution? Well, it could be that there's some core funding or something that carries it on, but oftentimes it doesn't get funded beyond that response. And so you have a lot of like, kind of like a, a mosaic of half done data products and data solutions um, without necessarily any kind of long-term cohesive solution. So I think for on the funding part, it really needs to be longer term that's not tied specifically to responses. And I think that donor organizations are becoming more aware of this and there are quite a few opportunities for funding that I've seen for these longer term data initiatives that aren't tied to responses. Yeah, that sounds like, you know, you've seen the short term view and, and then the need for the longer term thinking. Perhaps um, on that note, do you find that the humanitarian community is kind of duplicating things or, or not being, you know, where can things improve to streamline the way the humanitarian community's use of information and data can be a little bit more effective and impactful? Yeah, I think the unfortunate reality is that there is quite a bit of duplication of efforts in the humanitarian community. One thing that I've enjoyed working with DEEP and the DEEP board, which is made up of a number of different humanitarian organizations, is that a real focus of the project is to foster this collaboration. Because what we see a lot of times is that organizations will do similar types of data review activities and analysis activities sort of in silo. And you're, of course, spending a lot of time and, and effort on doing pretty much the same thing, but for different organizations. But the but a, an unfortunate aspect as well is that oftentimes organizations will have different taxonomies and ways they want to structure their information. So it becomes quite difficult for them to sort of marry it into one cohesive data set. And I think that's a big part that dictates having this more siloed workflows. And I guess in crisis management, it kind of, that short-term thinking's very much in the moment, isn't it? If you were road mapping what the tech and humanitarian communities should be working on now to improve humanitarian applications of artificial intelligence, what would you say is most needed now? I think your first part really rings true, which is that when you're working in the field and responding to a, a sudden onset disaster, a lot of these idealist and best practices kind of go out the window because you simply need to get it done, right? And that often means not following the best data standards just because it, it takes too long. And responding to a crisis, you know, time is, is a real factor and information management officers and analysts are, are very stretched and they have, you know, a thousand and one things to do. So sometimes things like data really do take a backseat. So I think in light of that, to, to your second part, what can the 
AI and machine learning community do. It's really to, in my opinion, it's really to develop tools that are quite easy to use and quite digestible so that they can make the lives of humanitarian responders easier and not just be another kind of complicated mechanism or tool that they have to use in the process of a response. So Yuan, it's really interesting. We've been chatting to people about natural language processing and you know, we'd love to know a big part of what data-friendly space does in this regard. How do natural language processing and artificial intelligence relate to DEEP and is your work applicable to the larger humanitarian community? So when I first started working in a humanitarian community, I, I remember having this long argument with someone and they were saying there's really no place for machine learning and artificial intelligence in the humanitarian world simply because you know the data is too sparse the data is too incomplete and dirty etc but over the the years that i've been doing this work i definitely do see a number of applications for it and one of these is natural language processing so as i mentioned earlier deep is uh, a software that allows for taking all this raw data and essentially structuring it in a bit more formal process and it's very manual and it's very time consuming. It basically means that teams of people need to read through large PDF documents, take pieces of text and images, and then annotate them. And what we've noticed as we've been developing Deep is that we've developed this extremely large database of very granularly annotated pieces of information. And for anyone who's familiar with developing machine learning algorithms, the more granular and precise the information is that you have to build models then the more accurate they can be so we have this real wealth of information upon which we can build machine learning models and natural language processing so our vision with natural language processing is really to automate the more manual processes of data review and really allow human analysts to use their brain to do more critical thinking and to not spend the time just reading through endless amounts of information. In the future, what we want the system to be able to do is to also inform other humanitarian applications. So for right now, it, in the start of next year, we're gonna roll out a feature in Deep that includes natural language processing and can help this process of data review. But the same system, we also want to be able to be ingested and used by other humanitarian applications and organizations as well. Wow. Well, that could be a good segue to the next question. You've been discussing the possibility of all the um, applications of, of information. How about applying the decentralized autonomous organization to DFS? Can you talk more about this and, and why that interests you, I believe? The implications and benefits are are huge. We chatted a bit earlier about it, but perhaps you can expand on DAO and DFS. I find that serendipity often governs my life, maybe in more ways than it should. And over the past year, I've been thinking about... So my role within Data Friendly Space, I'm the executive director. And having that implies some sort of top-down management structure and i think for most of my life i've been a little hesitant about kind of more rigid bureaucracies in this type of organization so i've been thinking about well what could we do that would sort of sidestep this a bit and to get more people in the organization involved in decision making 
and um, setting the vision and purpose of the organization. And so, so I started to think of essentially how could you democratize an organization like this more and sort of in, as a coincidence, I came across DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations, which is essentially a organizational structure built off of Ethereum that allows for democratization and direct participation of members of an organization to, to essentially govern it. What it's really interesting about DAOs is that the more you participate, then the more say that you can have in terms of what the organization does. I think it really aligns quite nicely with DFS because we are a purely remote organization and we, we have quite low overhead and we're, we're quite mission focused. And so the more ways that we can get a remote global workforce engaged in the organization is really important to us because honestly, it can be quite hard to get a global team to sort of be engaged in the ins and outs of what, a, what the organization does. So we, we are not currently a DAO. And as a fun fact in the US, I think only in Wyoming can you legally incorporate an organization as a DAO. And I don't believe there's any sort of nonprofit DAO entity that exists in the US. So for next year, we're, we're looking into how we can somehow transition at least a part of our organization into a, a DAO methodology. And the adoption side, implications, benefits, uh request for the community to engage what would you ask i think a real perk of adopting a dao would be transparency transparency in general is something that we're trying to get better about as an organization we operate in the public good we receive money often from taxpayers of various countries and so to not be transparent seems a little um sort of against the ethics of the ways that this money has been given to us. So the more that we can sort of open our doors to allow people to know how we're spending our money and what we're spending it on, um, that is interesting to me because it would sort of force us, not that we're doing anything in terms of our internal practices that I'm not proud of, but it forces us to really be more stringent about how we're operating and I think also it, it can help to maybe catalyze similar initiatives among other humanitarian organizations. Because one thing that I have been a bit frustrated in, in terms of working in the humanitarian community, can be the lack of transparency. And so the more ways that we can help to make that a, a central idea of different organizations, then I think that's a real plus. That's interesting. You should say that. But um... yeah, you and this is Brent. Um just recording the interview behind the scenes, you spoke about transparency. How do you feel about the International Aid Transparency Initiative and other standardization initiatives? Looking ahead to the future and the metaverse and AI and all that, do we need to prioritize the standardization of data? And how do you feel about these initiatives like IATI, for example? IATI is a really interesting initiative and I, I fully support any effort to have standardization but what I see a lot in platforms like IADI is that, you know, they're only as helpful or as useful as the information that's reported to them. And I think there's a lot of ways that you can make them more accessible. 
uh, be it through ingesting data or being able to submit data via an API and things like that. But it's really at the mercy of what organizations will report. Now, of course, you can put things in, in donor agreements that state that you have to report to IATI and other platforms. Um, but oftentimes, you know, those, those requests aren't followed too closely. So my general feeling on tools like IATI is that there really needs to be a, a more proactive element where they go out and they find information that they can then ingest into their system. And I think this is a really interesting application for machine learning and natural language processing, which is, and also for a hybrid system of human in the loop and humans assisting machine learning, which is, you know, if you could have a team of people that are supported by all these different algorithmic processes that can go out and find whatever information is available online about what aid activities have been delivered and then ingest that into something like IATI, I think it becomes much more powerful as opposed to waiting for people to self-report to it. But I think going forward into the future, you know, these will definitely remain very important initiatives. And there's a couple others that I'd like to shout out that I'm a big fan of. One of them is HXL or Hexel. It's really a simple tool that allows for putting in little hashtags in uh, Excel sheets to sort of standardize what's contained in them. And the other one is the OCHA taxonomy as a service, which is a, a set of standardized information points that are accessible through their website. So really you're saying that we need to increase the number of IATI fields and increase the number of HXL fields. Like IATI has almost 500 standardized elements and attributes. So, you know, it's an extensible XML standard. So we can just add more fields to it and maybe agree on fields as a community using HXL. Is that what you're kind of getting at? Yeah, I, I think there there's certainly use for them. I don't know if I'm necessarily advocating a giant proliferation of them because I think you can get into a, a scenario where you have too many standards and you have too many different places you need to report to. There's a really good um, XKCD comic where they're talking about standards and they say, oh, there's 14 standards. I think it's 14 standards. And we created one like global standard and now there's 15 standards, you know, so it's, I don't know, standards are just really difficult regardless of the industry that you work in. This sounds like a job for a DAO, right? You know, we need a, <laughs> A, a democratic structure, a decentralized, uh, yeah, autonomous, I, mean, uh, I think the whole to like govern standards and I, I, I mean, I think the whole humanitarian community should become one giant DAO, but I think, um, <laughs> that might be ill-advised and wishful thinking at this point, but you never know. So you and I'm really impressed with everything you've said. I'm just wondering what, what are you most proud of about DFS? I think what I'm most proud of about DFS is the the workforce and the jobs that we've been able to build out in Nepal. I think that the work that we do has an intrinsic value and supports the humanitarian community, but I really do feel quite proud about being able to provide tech jobs and um, analysis jobs to our workforce in Nepal. Nepal is an interesting country because there is simply a, quite an overflow of NGOs, both overseas and nationally, that certainly do good work, 
but when I was there, I, you know, I played around with the idea of having an NGO that would do more traditional activities such as education or health services to those in need. But what I found kind of aligned most closely with my background was essentially starting a tech company out there with some co-founders and being able to, yeah, just have, you know, well-paying jobs for the context and to be able to start to grow the IT scene in Kathmandu and in Nepal. I mean, the country is quite overshadowed by India and China, which are substantially larger. And on that note, any regrets you'd like to share or lessons you've learned that you've faced along the way? I'm not sure if we have enough time for all of my regrets, (laughs) but I think looking back, one of the main regrets that I have is how some of the management and some of the financial tracking that I did internally while running DFS and our predecessor, which was a, a private company. What I'm specifically referring to is I used to spend a lot of time with a bookkeeper doing very nitty gritty financial allocations to projects and internal cost structures and stuff like that. And what I found is that we never really actually used this information for anything useful. So we spent a lot of time structuring this financial data and then it was never used properly or at all rather. So that is some of a regret I have. And I think it's an interesting lesson about data in general, which is that you can spend all the time you want making some beautiful piece of information or a data product, but if it's never actually used, then you know what's the purpose of it? So I would probably call that my, my main regret. Sorry to jump in again. This is Brent. You know, as long as organizations report their data properly and you know, with proper tags and labels and metadata and all that. Maybe this information, because it's accessible to machine applications in the future, you know, I guess there's still value in tagging it properly and making it accessible. You know, you could always return to the data and query it still. No, I I mean, I absolutely agree. And I think that if you can continue, continue this over the long term to have well tagged information, then you can really start to build things like trend analysis and both for forecasting and retroactively. But, you know, the downfall is that if you have a bunch of really rich data from four years ago, and then there's a big gap, well, then it's, you know, it does have some interest, but it's really that sort of longitudinal aspect that I think has quite a bit of value. What's your advice for humanitarian organizations then in terms of data? So you, they should obviously be recording, reporting consistently. That was one point you just made and um, tagging properly and the consistency of reporting or should they spend more time expanding what they're reporting on or more time on continuity? I think it's really to, I think my advice is on a more simple level, which is to store information in a way that is machine readable and readily accessible. Going back to that example I gave of the project of going through large amounts of PDF documents. When information is stored, it's really important, I think, to consider what, you know, how this can be used in the future and that it's just not thrown into some dark corner or data repository where it may never see the light of day again, really. The linguist in me is asking, does that pick up on nuance and things that are unquantifiable, but I'll refrain 
from going into that, <laughs> that kind of tangent. Um, I think we're kind of wrapping things up. Before we ask for any closing takeaways, we also like to ask our guests to name something they'd love to see a futuristic AI application do. What would you like to see, Ewan? I had a lot of fun thinking about this question. And I think it goes to one of the main hesitancies I have about doing this kind of work, especially as DFS being a support organization and also quite remote based, um, which is that it's really hard for us to gauge the impact of our work. You know, if you release a data product or a data service that could be used or seen by a hundred people that are in the field, what does that actually mean, right? It, it could mean that it's had a giant impact or it could mean that it hasn't had any sort of impact. So my magical AI solution would be that it's a machine or a website or a metaverse. I don't know what it is, but you basically tell it what you're doing and uh, it will tell you the actual impact that your initiative or your project will have. And, you know, I think, I think if that did come to fruition and humanitarian organizations did use it, I think you might have a lot of people quit their jobs quite immediately <laughs> because I mean, to be frank, I don't always know if some of the activities done in the humanitarian community are the most fruitful. If I understood correctly, the futuristic AI application will help amplify, you know, resources that they're being put to good use and, you know, help to match up going to yield the most or whatever, you know, it's a bit like agriculture, you know, and farming and you know, making sure you're optimizing be... everything. Yeah, it would be more like your idea has saved 500 lives or your idea has led to the rebuilding of like 200 schools or it could be, you know, your idea was a PDF report that 20 people read and it impacted zero operations on the ground, you know. Got it. So is there anything you'd like to give a shout out about, like news about new initiatives, opportunities or open positions, needs, others doing noteworthy work, anything else you might have to share? I think my big shout out would go to everyone, both within the DFS team and in the humanitarian community at large that became involved with this work during COVID and during the lockdown. We've worked with a number of volunteers and staff members that have changed sort of career paths working in the humanitarian context and recognizing that definitely, you know, sitting behind a laptop and doing this work isn't the most glamorous and indeed sometimes not the most interesting way to do it. But, you know, the work itself is, of course, still valuable. And um, so big shout out to, to that crowd. And then, of course, our other call out would be for uh, development sector friends. Most of our work so far has been in the humanitarian community. And we're, we're looking next year and, and beyond to start working more in the development sector. Lastly, for initiatives that I'm interested in, I've always been a big fan of humanitarian OpenStreetMap and the OpenStreetMap project in general. Uh, so big shout out to those guys. Thank you so much. So Ewan, we're almost at the end of 2021 and you sound really grounded for someone who's managing so much. Any kind of end of year reflections you'd like to share? Any tips, advice to a community that's probably seen so much over the past year? 
what would you like to say? I think it's to keep the mission in mind. I think that in going through this work day in, day out, and dealing with everything that comes along with it, the intricacies of how to get paid for invoices or how to manage HR processes, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of work that's done that doesn't seem relevant to the humanitarian mission that one's organization may do. So I think my, my shout out would be to sort of keep your head up it's all part of the process. And of course, to keep the mission in mind and to, I mean, to really let it sort of guide everything that you do as an organization and to guide your organization as a whole. Ewan, I just have to interrupt again. You, you mentioned uh, invoicing and uh, challenges smaller organizations face, you know, getting paid. I think you have a story here, don't you? <laughs> Yes, we uh, unfortunately do spend an oversized amount of our time on essentially getting paid for our work from other humanitarian organizations that are potentially larger than us. And I mean, the unfortunate reality for us and other organizations is that, you know, big delays in getting paid for projects can have real impact because obviously people need to get paid. And um, oftentimes I do somewhat feel like we can be a bit of a bank in that we, we pay out people to do work and then we wait to get paid by organizations that we partner with. But to make light of this, we submitted a, an invoice for work that was done almost a year ago. And we sent a number of emails and follow-ups just being like, hey, what's the status of this? What's, what's the latest on payment? And over and over. And then it, it was coming up to a 12-month period. So I thought, you know, what better, what better way to celebrate this the life of this more than nascent invoice than by making a cake for it. So I contacted a local bakery. I had them print the invoice on a cake, you know, like you can do pictures of your family or dog or whatever. And we wrote happy birthday invoice number 1058 or whatever it was with the idea that the invoice wouldn't be paid and that it would be able to celebrate its first birthday. Although like, Literally an hour after I made this cake, we got paid for the invoice, you know, like 11 and a half months later. So I think it was the cake that really triggered the universe for us to finally get, get paid for this work. That's a sweet and happy ending there. Wow. Um, <laughs> good, good idea. I like the creativity there. There's always technological imagination. You got to keep things light sometimes. I think you can all get kind of boring and dull sometimes if you don't. <laughs> One thing I'd add to my answer is that we considered we considered sending the cake to the offices of this organization to see if that would hasten things, but we, we stopped short of actually sending the cake and kept it for ourselves. It was quite a nice cake, honestly. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I think that's um, a great way to inspire people to pay, send them cake, yes. All right, so... I guess that gives this 2021, how should we close it, Brent? Do you want to close it? I think you should close this one. Go on. We interviewed um, Christopher Hoffman, and he actually played his drums for us to end his interview. And uh, I wish he was here to play for us. I guess that's my wish. But thanks to everyone who's participated in these interviews. And Mia, thanks to you. And thanks to our other guest hosts for uh, making this a cool podcast series. And I think there's a, a need for the humanitarian and tech communities to talk about humanitarian applications of artificial intelligence. So thank you, everybody. 
Yeah, I'd like to also say a quick thanks to you, Brent and Mia, for putting this on and making it happen. I think it's um, super interesting to give platform and a space for people in this world to, to talk about this. And I think podcasts, I've always been a big podcast fan, so I find them quite ingestible and I wish you good luck in 2022. Ewan, would you like to um, close the interview? And we normally say, and this brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close, but we'll let you do it. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI to a close.